All right. Well, we are back in John, and we are in John chapter 7, and we're going to finish the chapter today. Um, we're going to be in verses 40 through 52. So if you would, let's turn there and let's begin by reading this passage of Scripture together. And remember as we read, this is God's inspired and inerrant word. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. That's the reading of God's word. Jesus is divisive. What I mean is that telling the truth about Jesus, as it's revealed in the New Testament, leads to division among those who hear it. So some believe it, some reject it, and others do something in between. And this happened to Jesus himself. It also happened to his apostles and to the earliest Christians, as we see in the book of Acts. It happened to Christians throughout history, and it happens to us as well. In fact, we've probably all experienced this dynamic when we talk to people about Jesus. And it really shouldn't surprise us that Jesus divides people like this. After all, he told us that it would happen. You might be familiar with Luke chapter 12, verses 51 through 53, where Jesus said, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So we must expect people to be divided in their response to the truth about Jesus. Now, of course, we have to hasten to clarify that the source of that division is not Jesus himself. The source of the division is the different states of people's hearts. Do you remember how Jesus himself explained this in his parable of the soils or sometimes called the parable of the sower? That when the gospel is proclaimed, when the seed is cast out, people respond to it differently because the soil of their hearts is in different conditions. 
So some people's hearts are like a path, hard and unreceptive. Some are like shallow soil, initially receptive but hard underneath. And then some people are like soil that the seed can go down into, but it's infested with choking thorns. And then there's other people whose hearts are like good soil by God's grace. And they are receptive and it's rich and fruitful. This is why the gospel of Jesus Christ divides people when they hear it, because people's hearts are in different conditions. And the Apostle John takes a special interest in his account of the gospel in explaining this dynamic. And our text this morning is one prime example of that. So in John chapter 7, verses 40 through 52, our text, he tells us about different ways that people responded to Jesus' words. And then he says in verse 43... So there was a division among the people over him. And we're going to see that he does the same thing again in chapter 9. And then again in chapter 10. Now his purpose in doing this seems to be to engage with people who respond in these different ways. He shows why some of these responses are misguided. Some are deficient. And his purpose is to encourage people to a response of faith instead. As he will put it at the very end of the book, chapter 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the ultimate goal in all this. And we as Christians, as we read this text... We are not only going to be encouraged to the right response to Jesus, the response of faith, that we might continue believing in him, but we're also going to learn to understand these other kinds of responses, what leads to it, and how to engage with these responses to Jesus in our own day. So, let's dive in, and let's begin by just remembering a few things about this text. First, you might remember that I have told you again and again that we are in a section of John's Gospel which has sometimes come to be called the festival cycle because it describes various cycles in Jesus' life where there were events that occurred in connection with a Jewish festival, four Jewish festivals in particular sometimes called feasts. Each time another cycle occurred, each time Jesus went up to Jerusalem to celebrate one of these feasts, he clashed with the Jews, and the Jewish leaders' hostility toward him increased. So, the first cycle, back in chapter 5, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast. It's unnamed And the Jews there begin to seek to kill him because he violated their Sabbath rules and because he justified it by claiming that he was the divine son of God. Now, two chapters later, in chapter 7, he's going up to Jerusalem again. Here's another cycle, this time for the Feast of Booths. 
Sometimes this feast was simply called tabernacles. But we see that he went in private this time and he kept a low profile at the feast for a while because he knew that the Jews were intending to seize him and arrest him and put him to death. But dramatically, in chapter 7, verse 14, we see that in the middle of the feast, he went into the temple in front of everyone and began to teach the people publicly. The Jewish leaders sent officers to arrest him And for some unexplained reason, they don't do it. Finally, last time we were in this chapter, we saw in verses 37 through 38, it says this, quote, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And as I said in my last sermon, this was a way of announcing the good news that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah who had come to pour out the Holy Spirit into the hearts of his people to give them eternal life, to quench the thirst of their souls permanently. In other words, this was the gospel in a nutshell. Now, John finished his description of this third festival scene in our text by describing the divided response that people had to that presentation of the gospel in verses 37 through 38 on the last day of the feast. And what we see is we can identify at least five different responses that John recounts for us here in verses 40 through 52. Now, the first response is in verses 40 and 41. So if you look there again with me, look what it says. When they heard these words, the ones I just read for you, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. We might call this response faith made public. These people believed in Jesus. They were not all completely clear about his identity. Some believed he was the prophet like Moses that was predicted to come in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Others believed he was the Christ, that is, the descendant of David whom the Lord would anoint as king over his people and over all things forever, whose coming is predicted throughout the Old Testament. In reality, the prophet and the Christ were the same person, but despite a certain amount of confusion on this issue, these people believed that Jesus had come to fulfill these roles. Now, they were, no doubt, The same general group of people that have already been mentioned in this text. Back in verse 31, we read, Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? In other words, these were people who had heard Jesus' claims about himself. They had also seen the signs, the miracles he'd been performing to back up those claims. And they'd come to the conclusion, he must really be the Christ, be the prophet. And they believed in him. Now, 
It's also clear that they may not have shouted it from the rooftops because they were afraid that if they did, they were going to be kicked out of the synagogue by the Jews, but they certainly were willing to declare it to one another. In other words, this was faith made public. Now, if you're here this morning and you haven't already done so, this is what I, every Christian in this room, desires for you. That you would hear the eyewitness testimony recorded in the New Testament about who Jesus is and what he has done and that you too would come to put your faith in him, to believe in him for salvation and publicly confess him as your Lord. And what does the New Testament testify about Jesus, you might be asking? Well, all four Gospels, written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, as well as the many letters written by his apostles after, they all bear a consistent and independently corroborating testimony to the same basic truths. That Jesus has always existed as the divine Son of God, but he willingly came into the world as a man at the behest of his Father, God the Father, and that he came to redeem, to save fallen, rebellious human beings like you and me who would believe in him. That he'd save us from the penalty that our sins deserve. And how would he do that? By living a perfectly righteous human life as our representative. And then dying the death that we deserve for our sins as a sacrifice before God in our place upon the cross. And then rising from the dead and ascending into heaven. He's alive again and he now Offers He has sent out the gospel, the good news, that forgiveness of sins and eternal life in fellowship with him is given to any undeserving, hell-deserving sinner who will simply come to him in faith, repenting of their sins, asking for mercy. And all who are saved by his grace like that, through faith, are then called to confess it before men and to begin living a life of obedience to his commands by the power which he provides to us as his people. Paul famously said this in Romans 10, 9 through 10. He said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That is faith made public. And if you haven't done so yet, I would urge you to respond to Jesus in that way. Don't wait. You can do it Right where you sit, even in the silence of your own heart, go to the Lord, repenting of your sin, asking him to save you. But then talk to someone about it, even after the service today, so that you can help learn, where do I go from here? Now, brothers and sisters, we who are Christians, let us remember that our faith, too, is public. It's not private. It cannot be kept hidden, either 
out of ease or out of fear because we are called to confess our faith before men. We're to say of Jesus, like the people in this text, this really is the prophet. This is the Christ. Because he sent us out to be witnesses. We're to announce the good news to others as ambassadors on his behalf in the world. And if we suffer the scorn and the abuse of men as a result, well, so be it. Our king, our savior, as we sing in that song that we love, went through hell and down into the grave for us. Surely we can endure lesser sufferings on his behalf. Indeed, it is a joyful privilege to do that. The second response comes in verses 41 through 42. If you look there, 41 and 42, there it says, But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Now we might call this unbelief rooted in ignorance. These people didn't believe that Jesus could be the Messiah because they thought that his life didn't fit the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. They knew that Jesus had come from Galilee, they say. Now, Galilee, it was a region of Israel located in the far north of the country, up by the Sea of Galilee. That's why it's called Galilee. And it's separated from Judea and Jerusalem, uh, which was the religious and political center of Israel at the time. It's separated by a large region called Samaria, which lay in between. And so these people knew that Jesus had grown up north up in Galilee, and they may have even known something about his family. He was known as being Jesus of Nazareth, so maybe they even knew that he grew up in a particular village in Galilee called Nazareth. And so, as a result, they seem to have assumed that this is where he was born. So they concluded he can't be the Messiah because they knew that One of the oracles of Micah the prophet had explicitly predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, that little village down in Judea in the south where David had once been born. In fact, the prophecy of Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So if Jesus had been born in Galilee, then these people would have been right to conclude that, well, he couldn't have been the Messiah because the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The problem was, Jesus hadn't been born in Galilee. Rather, as we see so famously, right, in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, that we read every Christmas, in a strange twist of divinely directed events... Joseph was compelled to travel down to Bethlehem to be registered for an imperial census in the final months of his virgin wife's pregnancy so that Mary gave birth to Jesus in a Bethlehem stable far away from their hometown in Nazareth. And it was all in fulfillment of Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But these people were ignorant of that. And instead of seeing the 
miraculous signs that Jesus was performing and thinking, well, maybe we didn't have the whole story about him. They simply conclude in their ignorance that he could not be the Christ. This was unbelief rooted in ignorance. Now, if you are here this morning and you haven't believed in Jesus, I wonder what are your objections to doing so? Maybe it's a practical objection. You know, you can't believe in Jesus because of the sins that you have seen or experienced yourself in his people. Or maybe it's a moral objection. You can't believe in a God who would permit such evil and suffering in in the world and in your life. Possibly it's a, a theological objection. You can't believe in a God who, the Bible says, would punish people in hell forever simply because they don't believe in Jesus. Have you considered, I wonder, that there might be good answers to these objections? Have you bothered to look into the matter? You know, Christians are not unaware of those types of objections. Why haven't they prevented them from believing? Perhaps Christians might have thought through these objections. Maybe they provided some thorough and convincing answers to them. Perhaps they aren't actually a good reason for not believing in Jesus. Perhaps they're not a good reason for your unbelief after all. And if so, your unbelief, like that of the Jews in this passage, might really be rooted more in your ignorance of these issues than you really understood. And that would be no small matter, would it? Considering that the eternal destiny of your soul may very well depend upon these things. Indeed, I would urge you to give Jesus this man whose life and ministry has profoundly shaped the entire course of human history. Give him the benefit of the doubt and seek to know the truth about him. Read the eyewitness testimony of his life and his ministry in the New Testament. Pray for him to reveal himself to you. If he really is, as his apostles said, alive and seated at the right hand of God in heaven. Talk to mature Christians about your objections. Give them opportunity to point you to answers that Christians have given to your objections throughout the centuries. You may find that at the end of the day, your reasons for not believing are not nearly as compelling as you thought them to be. And Christians, remember, many people don't believe Because they simply do not know. Oh, I'm not saying that their unbelief can be reduced entirely down to that. But ignorance may be a great part of it. So ask them what they believe about Jesus. Find out what people know. Find out where they may be ignorant about what Christianity really is. This is a a good question. In evangelism, say, they ask um, me, Jeremy, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. Oh, boy. So then they tell you when they used to go to church and they stop using foul language and all of that. But, you know, a good next question is, uh, what do you think about Christianity? What's your understanding of what it means to be a Christian? Find out where people are really at and then tell them the gospel. 
Point them to the scriptures. Tell them to read the Bible for themselves. Encourage them to do this. Don't just be satisfied also with just getting the gospel message out and going, I got it out. Now we're good. Be patient with people. Keep interacting with them. Have multiple conversations. Listen to their objections. Be ready to make a defense for the hope that you have within you, as Peter has commanded us. Help them see the coherence of the Bible's worldview and the deficiency of their own with a spirit of gentleness and compassion. And if you're saying, Jeremy, I can't really do that. Okay, that's okay. Uh, you could at least cook a meal, invite them over to dinner, and then bring someone else into the picture who, who really is equipped to interact with them at that level. Evangelism ultimately really is a, a communal effort, and we don't all have the same gifts or abilities, but it should encourage us knowing that many people don't believe because of ignorance to always strive to grow in our knowledge of what we believe and why so that we may help them better. The third response is next. It's in verses 44 through 46. And if you look there, verses 44 through 46, it says, Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Let's call this response unbelief, because we have no indication that these officers believed in Jesus. Some of them may. But let's call this respectful unbelief. You know, these verses tie up a loose end that had been hanging since verse 32. Because there it had said that the chief priests and Pharisees had sent officers, that is, officers of the temple, temple guards, out to arrest Jesus, who was teaching in the temple. But apparently they didn't, because Jesus kept right on teaching, and we're sort of left with, what happened? You know, Jesus wasn't hiding, he's right there, he's standing in the temple teaching. Why didn't they just take him into custody, as they'd been instructed to do? That's what the chief priests and the Pharisees wanted to know when the officers returned to them empty-handed. And the answer given by the officers is so striking. They say, no one ever spoke like this man. You know, back in chapter, uh, verse 15, it said that when Jesus started to teach the people in the temple at this feast, it says the Jews marveled. They marveled. And this was a common reaction that people had to Jesus' teaching. It's mentioned many times in the gospel. And there seems to be two main reasons for it. First, they were amazed at the authority with which he spoke. You know, he didn't appeal to the authority of the rabbis. He just spoke as one with authority. In fact, after his Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew 5-7, through at the very end, in Matthew 7, 28-29, it says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So first, his authority amazed people. But second, they also marveled at the wisdom that he demonstrated in his teaching. So for instance, we read this a little later in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 13, 54-56, it says, Coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. 
so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Power, wisdom, authority, all of these things astonish people about his teaching. And most likely it's those things that astonished not only the crowds who heard him teach here in John chapter 7, but also these temple officers. They'd never heard anything like it. And it made them reticent to follow through on their orders to arrest him. They just couldn't bring themselves to do it, it seems. How could they arrest this man, who was not only performing miraculous signs, but also spoke with such wisdom and such authority? Notice, there's no mention of these officers believing in Jesus Christ. In fact, they return to the chief priests and Pharisees, apparently still in their camp. After all, they didn't want to lose their jobs, right? But they didn't share their leader's hostility toward Jesus. Their firsthand experience of him had left them amazed. It was a respectful unbelief. Maybe you're here and you too have a respect for Jesus. Maybe you've read about him in the Bible a little bit, or you've at least heard something about him, maybe from a Christian friend, and you have a certain respect for him. You think highly of him. You think, surely he was a great man. I mean, his moral instruction alone has had a a positive impact upon the world. You may even appreciate the faith of Christians that you know, and you see that the effect that their faith has had upon You, whether it's your friends or your family's faith. But for all the regard that you have for Jesus, you still don't believe in him yourself. Maybe you find organized religion too constraining. Or you feel that Jesus, as great as he is, to follow him would mean that I wouldn't be able to live the way that I want. And so you're pretty sure that Jesus would be cool if you you respected him but didn't believe in him. If that's what you think, I really want to warn you that that simply isn't so. Jesus does not accept unbelief in him, no matter how respectful you are. You see, the Apostle John, who, remember, knew knew Jesus personally, he told us in this account of Jesus' life, his gospel, he said that Jesus is the eternal divine son of God. In chapter 1 he says, he's the one through whom the world was made. And now he's become flesh and dwelt among us so that he might save us from the punishment that we deserve for our sins. But far from being okay with human beings having a sort of respectful unbelief in him, Jesus records, John records Jesus saying this of himself. In what is a very famous text. But often we fail to read down a few verses. Listen to what it says in John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, actually, you cannot truly have respect for Jesus and refuse to believe in him, can you? To refuse to believe in him is to dishonor him, is to rebel against him. And it leads to condemnation, Jesus said. There are really only two options, given who Jesus is. They're laid out in, John, in Psalm 2, which is a psalm about Jesus as the Messiah. It says this, kiss the son. You know, that was just a, a way of showing respect to a royal figure in the ancient days. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And fellow believers, let's not be lulled into thinking that people who show some kind of regard for Jesus, some kind of outward respect for him in in different ways, that, you know, they're probably all right. They haven't put their trust in him, of course, but they're not really against him. No, they're not any better off in the court of heaven than people who openly reject Jesus and abuse him. I'm not saying that respecting Jesus isn't better than disrespecting him, of course. But it does nothing to make a person right with God. A person is justified by faith in Jesus Christ and that alone. And this is what we must urgently call them to do if we care about their soul. We see the fourth response in verses 47 through 48, where it says this. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And then when one of their own Nicodemus questioned the propriety of their judgment of Jesus, They respond to him in verse 52 saying, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's call this response stubborn, arrogant unbelief. The Jewish leaders simply would not believe in Jesus. And nothing they saw him do, nothing they heard him say would change that. These are the people who eventually said that Jesus' undeniable demonstrations of power, casting out demons, for instance, was really done by Satan. There was simply no convincing him. It was a stubborn unbelief. And why? Well, their prejudice against Jesus was rooted in pride. They refused to believe in Jesus because he didn't follow their traditions. In fact, he dared to say that they were wrong So they condemned him as false and as deserving to die, whereas they themselves were the preservers of God's truth. Nor could they stand the fact that so many people in Israel were following Jesus and not them. So they condemned the crowds too as just being accursed, whereas they themselves were the true heirs of God's blessing. And so they ended up pointing to their own unbelief in Jesus as evidence that 
their officers and the crowds were wrong for believing him. We don't believe them. How can you? In other words, Jesus must be wrong because he disagreed with them. It was arrogant unbelief. And so when their colleague, Nicodemus, pointed out that that judgment of Jesus really violated the principle of due process laid out on the old covenant law, they just resorted to personal attack and bad arguments. They said, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. In other words, Jesus couldn't really be a true prophet. He's from Galilee, that Gentile-infested backwater far up in the north away from Jerusalem and Judea. No true prophet from come from there. Of course, one of the problems was that is that the prophets Jonah and Nahum had actually come from there in the past. And don't forget that Isaiah had predicted that the Messiah would arise from Galilee. You remember those words of Isaiah 9 verse 1? In the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Then he goes on to say that that way would be made glorious because out of it would come that child of whom it would be said that he was mighty God and prince of peace and that he would sit on David's throne forever. See, the stubborn pride of these learned Pharisees had blinded them to even their own ignorance and their error. It was stubborn, arrogant unbelief. If there's anyone here this morning who honestly, as you evaluate yourself, you find yourself in that position, just stubbornly unwilling to believe, hostile to Jesus, full of arguments against him, I would just urge you to realize you've not come to that place by some kind of honest, humble evaluation of Jesus through impartial reason. No. You've been hardened and blinded by your pride. His ideas, his values, they contradict yours. He doesn't condone your behavior. He requires humility. He requires repentance. And these things offend your pride. They challenge your own high opinion of yourself. They make you angry. But let me ask you, as God asked Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? Do you really have a right? Do you really have the ability to question such a one as Jesus? If Jesus is who the New Testament says he is, he has a right to teach and command us as he pleases. But he does so for our good because he loves us. He calls us away from pride, away from rebellion and selfishness so that he might forgive us and lead us, as Psalm 23 says, in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 2 through 3, do you remember Jesus famously took a child and he set him before his disciples? And he said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you're here this morning and you're caught in stubborn, arrogant unbelief this morning, the way forward for you is down. If you will humble yourself and come to Jesus in faith to save you, he'll gladly give you peace and eternal life with him in his kingdom. And Christians, it's important that we not be intimidated by 
arrogant derision by people who are stubbornly unbelieving around us. You know, people who, like the Pharisees, say, no one who is truly intelligent and educated and modern and moral believes what the Bible teaches. None of us have believed. Those beliefs that you hold are ignorant and uneducated and unlightened and morally backward. Those who think such things, most likely, they don't even know enough about Christianity to provide cogent criticisms of it. They rely instead on name-calling, on false accusations. Jesus calls us to endure that kind of abuse from unbelievers, but it'd be foolish to let it so affect our faith that it would cause us to waver because it's just the, pro- the, the result of pride and prejudice. Instead, we ought to respond to those attacks with kind but firm gospel witness, knowing that the arrogance which produces that kind of attitude, it's latent in all our hearts. And it requires a daily struggle to stay humble before the Lord by his grace. Finally, the fifth response in the last response in this passage. You see, you see it in verses 50 to 51. And there it says, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Let's call this response a slow and timid faith. We're first introduced to Nicodemus back in chapter 3. You remember? There we learned he was, quote, a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews, and the teacher of Israel. In other words, he was a member of a religious party that was devoted to the strictest observance of the Old Covenant law as it was interpreted by the rabbis. He was one of 70 Jewish men who sat on the ruling council of the nation, the Sanhedrin. And he was one of the foremost Bible teachers of the day. He has to be one of the most important people in all of Israel at that time. And yet, Unlike his fellow Pharisees and other members of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus had not rejected Jesus as just a false teacher and a blasphemer who deserved to die. Quite the opposite. He'd heard Jesus teach. He'd seen the miracles he performed. And Nicodemus concluded he must be from God. In fact, back in chapter 3, where we first saw Nicodemus, verse 2, it says this. He said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And while he didn't seem to have believed that Jesus was the Messiah at that point, he was almost certainly entertaining that possibility in his mind and prayerfully, no doubt, seeking the truth. But Nicodemus kept all these thoughts hidden because unlike those masses of average Jews who had no problem uh, professing their faith in Jesus as the Christ, Nicodemus knew that for him to do that would mean losing everything. It would mean facing the condemnation and perhaps even the violent hostility of his peers. So he came to Jesus at night, you remember, back in chapter 3. And while he defended Jesus here in our text, to some degree... It wouldn't be until after Jesus' crucifixion and death that Nicodemus would finally come out into the light, as it were, 
and identify himself with Jesus in a public way. Along with another man that Mark tells us was also a member of the Sanhedrin. And like Nicodemus had kept his faith in Jesus hidden for a while as well. Listen to these words in Mark or in um, John nineteen thirty eight through forty. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about seventy-five pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the custom, burial custom of the Jews. You know, it took him a while because of his fear of man. But Nicodemus finally got there. It was a slow and timid faith. You know, here we're reminded that some people are radically converted in an instant. The first time they hear the gospel, right? But others coming to faith is a process that takes some time. Some people are going to be bold to confess Jesus right away, and others are going to keep it hidden for a while. And they may do that because, like Nicodemus, they face the prospect of losing many things that are very dear to them if they follow Jesus. It might be their marriage. It might be their livelihood. It might be their acceptance in a family or a social group. It may be that for them, like Nicodemus... Believing in Jesus will mean accepting that a religion or an entire lifestyle which they have deeply imbibed for a long time was wrong. For such people, coming to faith in Jesus might be a longer and more painful process. Even when, like Nicodemus, they begin to suspect that the Bible is true in what it says about Jesus. It may be some time before the Lord breaks down all the barriers in their heart and they finally confess Jesus as the Christ and are baptized and join a local church where they begin following him. You know, we have a couple of biographies on our book rack. One is of a young man named Mez McConnell, another Rosaria Butterfield. And you can read how this very thing took place in their life. If you are in the throes of that kind of painful process this morning, I just encourage you, keep moving forward. Don't be content to stay in the shadows forever. The stakes are too high. I know the prospect of following Christ might seem daunting. And you might be struggling to face it. But don't allow that struggle to dishearten you or make you apathetic. The Lord Jesus is willing to be found by those who will earnestly seek him. And those who find him will discover a treasure that outweighs any cost in this life. So don't rest until you close with Christ. And Christians, you know, it's helpful for us to realize that not every conversion happens in the same way. (laughs) The fact that some are dramatically converted At the first time they hear the gospel means, hey, you may see that person on the airplane and never see them again. Tell them the gospel. You know, it might be that they'll be saved in that moment. But the fact that some people's faith is slow and sometimes timid should encourage us not to give up on people with whom we've already shared the gospel. 
The Lord Jesus, he didn't break a bruised reed or quench a smoking flax, and neither should we. Let's seek to fan a little embers of faith that we think we see into, into uh, flame by persevering with people over time, helping them work through their struggles, being merciful to them as they balk at letting go of long-standing habits of sin, etc. Encourage them to come to grips with the cost of following Jesus. Well, in conclusion, Jesus is divisive. That is, proclaiming the truth about him will result in a variety of different responses. And it's a reflection not of any deficiency in Jesus or his gospel, but in the sad condition of the human heart, apart from his grace. And this morning, we've seen some of the divided ways that people respond to Jesus, even in his own day. And as Christians, we learn how to evaluate, how to interact with these different responses. But the highest point of this text is to encourage everyone to respond to the gospel with that public faith we see expressed in verse 41. This is the Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a text like this and for the instruction that you give to us. And we pray that the truths that we've considered today would sink into our hearts and that as Christians we would be equipped by them for every good work. And if there are any who are unbelievers here that are wrestling through their response to Jesus, that you would engage with them now and as you did with Lydia in Acts 16, open their hearts to respond to the things that they have heard. That they would close with Christ this morning and believe in him. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.